Again, we're touring through the Old Testament. Obviously, we didn't spend a whole lot of time in Isaiah, 66 chapters. That's a lot of reading to do, but I encourage you to read on your own. And we're going to move into the prophet Jeremiah. Let me give you some historical background so you know where Jeremiah fits into the puzzle historically. Remember when last we had left our the nation Israel, the northern kingdom had been punished by God by the Assyrian Empire and taken to captivity. And Assyria was threatening to do the same to the southern kingdom, Judah. And they had Jerusalem surrounded and they were going to take Jerusalem by siege. And God moved mightily and through the prophet Isaiah had told Hezekiah to pray for God to deliver the city, not by sword or by chariot, by by the strength of his might. And in the middle of the night, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers died because of the angel of the Lord. And so Jerusalem was spared and Hezekiah's reign continued. And you would think that after such a miracle in a nation's history, that that would pretty much put them on the path to righteousness and fear of the Lord from that day forward. But you would only think that if you haven't been reading your Bibles from the beginning. The the awe, the worship, the wonder, the fear of the Lord just doesn't seem to last. And Judah's no different. After Hezekiah dies, his son takes the throne at age 12. And his name's Manasseh. And ends up being one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history. Have you ever met a family who's just the most gracious, God-fearing, loving, humble family ever, and then they have that black sheep, and you're like, how in the world did this kid come from this family? Or the reverse can happen. We've seen some just very gracious, righteous people come from some families very far from God. It reminds us in all humility as parents as we celebrate Mother's Day, there's no guarantees. There's biblical principles we follow. We pour out our hearts to the Lord. We pray for our children. We lead them to the Lord. We set a godly example. But you can't save your children. You can't make them believe. You can make them obey for a little while. But... Don't think that outward obedience means that on the inside there is a heart that is soft towards the things of God. And so Manasseh was just that kind of child. Of course, what would happen to any of us if we took the throne at age 12? I wasn't much good for anything at age 12 except getting into a bunch of mischief. I was obnoxious as a junior higher. But come on, aren't, aren't they all? Sorry if you're a junior higher in here, but it, it's why we quarantine you in special schools called middle schools. <laughs> Manessa reigned 55 years. You could do a lot of damage in 55 years to a nation. Our founders were smart for keeping the presidency down to four years. Yes, if you get a good king, you'd want him to reign as long as possible. But what happens when you get a Manessa? Fifty-five years. He reversed all of his father's reforms... He built altars to idols on all the high places and under the trees. He even built an altar to false idols in the temple of God. And worst of all, he reinstituted child sacrifice. 
and had many of his own sons pass through the fires in the valley of Hinnom, outside the walls of Jerusalem. The valley of Hinnom in Hebrew, it's pronounced Gehenna. And Jesus would later use that as a metaphor for hell. It said that after child sacrifice was ended, they would just use the valley of Hinnom as a garbage dump and they would keep fires burning there. And so it did become a picture of everlasting torment. And I know we're tempted again to think, oh, these, these ancient, pagan, unsophisticated cultures, that's so different than ours. And you heard my prayer for the unborn this morning. Don't think for a second that because we're modern people that there were any less barbaric, any less capable of horrific sin. In fact, it's the nation that refuses to learn from history that's doomed to repeat it, right? And I was lamenting first service that we're not teaching history anymore. Even when I was in high school, I took AP history, I passed the exam so I could test out of it in college, and it was really just facts and figures and dates and names. And never a deep discussion about the hows and the whys. And by extension, as we continue to talk about parenting and and motherhood, and Christianity cannot be boiled down to facts and figures and dates and names, though these things are important. If, If the discussion never gets to the hows and whys, then you're not raising Christians. Eventually, God punished Manasseh by having Assyria carry him off to captivity in chains and hooks, like literally a hook in his nose and led through the streets in shame in front of his own people with chain coming off of his nose, like like cattle. But while he's in Assyria, he repents and he's restored back to power. He's brought back to Judah and he's allowed to reign and he does bring some reforms back to Judah. But they're very superficial reforms. It cleaned up the outside of the cup, but the inside was still filthy. And because of that, the next king does wickedness. His name was Ammon. He took the throne at age 22. He reigned for only two years. He was so wicked that his own servants conspired against him and they, they, they killed him. And then the conspirators were rounded up and they were murdered. Or executed, I should say. And that kind of cleared the slate for the reign of Josiah. A good king who brought much reform to Judah. He took the throne at age eight, which would tell us that he had godly advisors. In fact, one of those advisors was a priest named Hilkiah, and when Josiah ordered that the temple be renovated, remove the false altars and bring it back to its former glory, they found the book of the law inside the temple. And Josiah was very excited and a resurgence in biblical teaching swept through Judah. Wouldn't that be great in our time? Except it's not lost. (laughs) We have literally billions of Bibles in America. They're just not being read and studied and applied. Add to that the Bibles on people's phones now. What a time we live in. We think about the 
martyrs who gave their life to translate the Bible into English. Please read your Bible. It's, it's not a decoration for your shelf. It's the Word of God. He speaks through His Word. This is when Jeremiah started his prophetic ministry, which is fascinating to me because you would think that in the time of all these reforms, why would you need a prophet warning people of coming judgment? Everything seemed great. Revival seemed to have swept through the land, and yet... Jeremiah began his prophetic ministry warning of coming judgment. And of course, no one's going to listen to that prophet. The sky is falling, the sky is falling. But God, if you read Jeremiah chapter 1, calls Jeremiah into this prophetic ministry and says... I singled you out before you were even born for this. Wow, huge view of God's sovereignty. And he, he tells them really to take these words and eat them. So they're in you. So when you speak, you're speaking the word of God. After Josiah, we have Jehoahaz. He reigns only three months. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he was deposed by Egypt. There were other enemies at that time besides Assyria. Assyria was eventually conquered by the Babylonian Empire. The next king after Jehoahaz was Jehoiakim. He reigned 11 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He was carried off to Babylon along with the prophet Daniel. That gives you kind of an idea of where Daniel fits into the picture. So you have Daniel along with his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being taken to to Babylon. After Jehoiakim is Jehoiachin. He only reigns for three months. He too is carried off to Babylon with the prophet Ezekiel. And the final king of Judah, Zedekiah, reigns 11 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, And Jerusalem is wiped out. It is just demolished, including the temple. Jeremiah is prophesying during all of these events. His prophetic ministry spanned five decades. He was known as the weeping prophet. God asked, required him to prophesy often by acting things out in the public square. And he was mocked and he was ridiculed and persecuted. His life was threatened. He was thrown in a pit. He didn't see a whole lot of converts in his day. Imagine preaching for almost 50 years and not seeing any fruit. But he was a faithful prophet. This morning we're going to look specifically from the book of Jeremiah. We obviously can't cover it all, but we're going to look specifically at um, what is God warning Judah about? What, And by extension, what is he warning us about? What is the essence of man's rebellion? We know we're sinners. We understand we're rebels. But unless you stop and really ask what's at the heart of rebellion, you'll just continue to rebel. And then we'll look at God's response, and then we'll close in the New Testament and look at a couple examples in the New Testament. So, let's look at man's rebellion. So, God is going to, through the prophet Jeremiah, tell Judah what its problem is. This is why judgment is coming. This is why, even though it looks like everything is going great, judgment is is coming. Jeremiah 2.11 Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. This rhetorical question. 
When has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? How can you replace God with something that isn't God? You may have think you've replaced God, but you haven't. This false god is not God. But this is exactly what he's saying my people have done. They've replaced or changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. So here's the part I really want you to take notes, either mentally or or physically. Here, Here is the two things that we're guilty of. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So we have rejection and replacement. Rejection and replacement. This is the essence of man's fallenness. The essence of our rebellion. Here we have the true God who describes himself as a fountain of living waters. And we sang that verse this morning in the last song. In first service, I was so overwhelmed with God's glory and goodness, I couldn't come up and speak for a little while. We don't plan out what songs the worship team chooses based on the sermon. We could. And a lot of churches do, and it's not something wrong to do. But I'm always amazed at how God arranges the music and the sermon. And I'm really going to play off this idea of living water, because Jesus uses it as a metaphor for himself in the New Testament. And then we sing in that last song about your name is is power and, and living water. You know, part of me says, are you kidding me, God? Really? Wow. I know you're real, but sometimes we need those moments where he's so obviously real and at work. And it just swept over me this morning. We take this glorious God who's capable of doing that, and he is the source of life, of living water, of fresh, life-giving, purifying cleansing water, an endless supply of it bubbling up from a fountain. And we reject it and replace it with a man-made cistern. A cistern was a, a bowl cut out of rock, hewn out of rock to collect rainwater. Right? Because it didn't rain all year long in Israel. Really, they have very similar climate that we have. So you need these cisterns to collect water. But the problem with cisterns is the water sits in it and becomes stagnant. It's no longer fresh. It's limited supply. And in this case, the cisterns are leaky. You, you see the spiritual picture here. Why would you trade the fountain of living water for leaky cisterns? This is what we do. We not only reject God, but now we have to replace God with something. And we replace God with something similar to God. If we don't have God in our life, then everything God is supposed to be in our life, we now need to replace with something else. You can't not have water in your life, right? You understand the metaphor. When Jesus came... And in John 14, 6, said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. This is a good way about thinking of everything that this water is. God is the way. He shows us the way to live, the way to think, the way to interpret our world, the way about everything. Comprehensively, He is the way. Ultimately, He is the way. There isn't a higher way than His. The scriptures say there is a way that seems right to a man, but it only leads to destruction. And that God's ways are what? Higher than man's ways. He is the truth. 
It's not that he has truth and we have truth and his truth is better. He is the truth. He is the source of truth. If something's true, it's true because he said it. It's not that God speaks and then a higher authority says, yes, God is right. And yet that is what we do. When we're even bothering to think about God. But most of the time, we just walk around and fill our heads with thoughts that come from our own cistern. This is the way we come into this world. This is the way children think. They're interpreting their world the way they want to interpret it. And it's our job as parents to help them interpret the world the way God has revealed in His Word that the world really is. They want their way, our children do. They want to be the source of truth. They don't like being told no. They don't like being told you're wrong. They don't like being told they need to do things another way. Finally, Jesus called himself life. He's the source of life. He's the source of eternal life. Without him, there is no life, and yet we walk around as if we gave ourselves life. Should break all of our hearts, our rebellion on one level, just against our own parents. That ugly pride that seems to have forgotten that somebody carried you for nine months gave birth to you, fed you, diapered you, clothed you, taught you everything. And then we turn and tell our parents, you're so stupid. I don't even really know how you managed to get along. You don't know. You don't understand. You don't get it. You've heard your kids say this before. And they don't put two and two together. We don't put two and two together and realize, well, if they're so stupid and they raised you, somehow I arrived on my own. I'm a self-made man. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. All these metaphors, so false. And that's just on a human level. If we find that objectionable, how much more would a holy God find that offensive? And so that is why our rebellion is so ugly to God. When I witness to people, when I disciple, which some call counseling, when I disciple, when I make disciples, we must first understand this is the nature of our fallenness. We walk around as our own gods, thinking, whatever I think must be the way things are, and everyone around me must come into alignment with my way of thinking. When we repent of this and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, most people like the Savior part, It's the Lord part they're still struggling with, but that's exactly where the battle is. We don't want Him to be Lord. Lord has slaves. When we come to Jesus, He doesn't free us from sin so we can go back to where we were being our own lords. We become His slave. We don't like that language. So we use the word servant because it kind of waters it down. But the biblical word is slave. We become his slave. But he's a good master. He's a loving master. He lays down his life for his slaves. He says, come drink the living waters and you'll never thirst again. So now that you have a better understanding of man's rebellion this rejection and this replacement, there's a third R, refusal. I would love for the third R to be repentance, (laughs) but 
Jeremiah goes on to say, Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. That's pretty strong language. Played the harlot with false gods. And we certainly have false gods today of all, of all stripes. And it just happens to be the false god du jour in our culture is secular humanism. Which they claim is no god at all, but it's a god. It's a god. And in our supposedly religiously free country where religious plurality is celebrated... We're rapidly seeing that there's only one God that will be allowed to be worshipped publicly, and that's this God of secular humanism. But Israel, the northern kingdom, was punished and taken captive by Assyria for its idolatry, its rejection of God and its replacement of God, rejection and replacement. And God goes on to say, I thought after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister, Judah, did not fear. But she went and was a harlot also. So the southern kingdom isn't learning by example. You say, well, I thought Josiah brought in all these reforms. He did, but they were superficial. This was what God was telling the people. I know everything looks good on the outside, but on the inside, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Other places in Jeremiah, he says, you need to circumcise your heart. You know, they got the book of the law. They realized, oh, we're supposed to be circumcising our babies on, an eighth, on the eighth day as a sign of the covenant. And God takes that, that sign of the covenant and says, you need to circumcise your hearts. Stop just with the outward obedience. You need inward submission to God. And because she took her harlotry lightly, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. That's a very vivid metaphor. The, the stones are the high places where the idolatry would happen and the trees too. Often these, these places of worship would be on the high places on stones or under uh, groves of trees. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. So we need to take note of this, even as Christian people, even as regenerate people. We, we've, we're regenerated, new birth, we've been born again, we have a new nature in us, but our old nature still remains until heaven. And we battle against this old nature. Paul describes us in Romans 7. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. And in Ephesians, you need to put off the old man and put on the new. There, there is this battle going on. And so, as I disciple people and disciple my own heart, and as you disciple your own heart and disciple others, you need to realize that it's not that when you become a Christian, you stop digging your own cisterns. They're still there. They're still there. And your life becomes this struggle of sanctification. Stop going to those old cisterns. Go to the fountain of living water. And you grow in spiritual maturity. And you find areas of your life where you've still hung on to those cisterns and, and you turn from it and repent of it and replace it with living water. 
But you also need to realize this about yourself as a Christian. And if you tuned out, tune back in right now. We will even, as Christians, take our rebellious thoughts and actions and throw a Bible verse on it and say, God told me this, God gave me this. It's why I'm very, very suspicious and caution you against teachers who tell you to close your Bible and just listen to God. When you read your Bible out loud, you are listening to God. It is the voice of God. Jeremiah says in another place, the heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can understand it? He even knew that as a sanctified prophet, he had to be suspicious of his own heart. And so many times, Christians may have the Word of God, and yet be replacing it with their own words and calling it God's Word. And that is why we need other Christians in our life. We need another set of eyes. We need a community where everybody is studying the Word of God and meeting in Bible studies in small groups and giving people permission to look into my life and show me, am I missing something? And to always be able to have an attitude that says, I still have things to learn. I want to hear from you. It doesn't mean you have to take in and accept as fact everything that everyone says. That would be wrong. This open-mindedness that the world says is a virtue, God calls that naivete. The simple-minded one is one who doesn't know how to shut the door to falsehood. So being open-minded can be a, a bad thing, God says. But pridefully closed-mindedness means... I have come to know the truth perfectly and I don't need anyone else's counsel. You never stop being a disciple. And it's foolishness to become your own discipler. Oh, sure, the, the Bible and the Holy Spirit makes a great discipler, but you need other people in your life. You need other people. I see no warrant in the Bible for the church of one. Even the Apostle Paul submitted to the Jerusalem Council. So Judah refused to learn from Israel, and we often refuse to learn from our own mistakes and the mistakes of others. So God's response, here's how he responds. Sometimes God responds by allowing people to suffer the consequences of their own delusions. You want to believe that stuff? Go ahead. Like the prodigal son. The father sends him away. Not because he doesn't love him, but because he realizes the only way this kid is going to learn is to live out his philosophy of life and see the emptiness of it. So remember, at this time there in Jeremiah's ministry, there's other prophets speaking, peace, peace, everything's great. You guys are wonderful. That would be like our prosperity preachers today. God is so happy with you that He just is waiting to make you rich and famous. It's what we want to hear. So, we listen to those people. No different in Jeremiah's day. They had their own prosperity preachers. 
And then this, this line, which I really have to help you with, because if you just read this one at face value, it would be really confusing. It says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, You will have peace, whereas a sword touches the throat. What's going on here? The prophet saying that God, that Yahweh, has utterly deceived this people? He's using a literary device here. He, he's saying... The people who listen to the false prophets, when judgment comes, they're going to say, Oh, Lord God, you have utterly deceived this people. You told us we would have peace when the whole time there was a sword to our throat. Jeremiah is prophetically echoing the words of the people who listen to the false prophets. They're going to cry out that God deceived them. But he didn't. He just let people listen to their own bad ideas. You want to believe those things? Then he hands us over. Paul talks about in Romans 1, he handed them over. Theologians call it the wrath of abandonment. Sometimes wrath comes in the form of a, a war or tragedy or poverty or all kinds of ways God can execute his judgment on us, but sometimes the worst judgment of all is God just giving us what we want. You've probably done this with your kids at some point. Just, just let, them, let them, go ahead, go ahead, eat that. In fact, in Jeremiah 23, 16, we, we do see God warning the people not to listen to the false prophets. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They think they're speaking the word of God, but it's their own thoughts, their own opinions, their own philosophies. And I would say that even, again, as Bible-believing, regenerate Christians, there's still a part of us who does this. We prophesy to ourselves wrongly. Which is why we need a sanity check every once in a while. Talk to those people who have permission to speak truth in your life. Are you seeing something that I don't see? You know, before you go around saying, everyone's being mean to me, Maybe the common denominator is you. Like, is everybody mean? God loves his people and takes no pleasure in punishing wickedness. He, he, he doesn't take pleasure in letting us suffer the fruit of our own rebellion. I mean, that would be like a cruel parent go ahead and letting the son or the daughter, the rebellious son or daughter, falling on their own sword and then laughing about it. Ha <laughs> I told you so. No, we grieve. And good, loving parents grieve knowing that a fall is coming for their children. But I don't want them to have to go through it. But it appears it's the only way. You grieve over their rebellion, but you grieve even more at the pain they are going to go through. I hope that's where your heart's at. And not the pain of the embarrassment that your children are going to bring on you. You should grieve more over your children's sins before a holy God and the pain they are going to experience from that rebellion than any embarrassment or shame it might bring you as a parent. I tell you what, that attitude, in my eyes, brings way more embarrassment and shame on you. When you can tell all a parent cares about is that my child gives me a good name. God loves his people, takes no pleasure in punishing wickedness. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain 
Oh, the walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. I know destruction is coming. And the same God who brought the destruction simultaneously, it grieves him that that destruction and punishment has to come. In Ezekiel 33.11, a, a contemporary of Jeremiah, God says this, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? This is God's heart, that people would turn from their ways. And God's judgment is just, Jeremiah goes on to explain, that it's not as if people's problem is that they're just ignorant. See, this is what the world is teaching us right now, secular humanism. You're born into this world a blank slate, a tabula rasa, and the only reason people do wickedness is because they just weren't taught the right way. It's their environment that causes their wickedness. And so just hand your children over and your money and we'll make sure they're taught correctly. And we have more and more problems and more and more prisons and we can't seem to build them fast enough. And the world is saying, we need your children sooner and we need more money. (laughs) We'll just throw money at the problem. Right? Now, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, you know the rest of the verse. That, that's, that's the solution. And so he says, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search your squares to see if you can find a man, a single man, one man who does justice and seeks truth that I may pardon her. This is kind of hearkening back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Would you destroy the city if there's 50 righteous? What about 10? What about one? And Paul tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. None seeks after God. All are guilty of this rejection and replacement. All of us were guilty of this rejection and replacement. This is a completely 180 degree opposite view of humanity from the world we live in. We are born sinners. We don't become sinners when we sin. We sin because we're born sinners. And all you mothers who've had two-year-olds know what I'm talking about. You didn't teach them to lie. You didn't teach them to throw that tantrum. You didn't teach them to rebel You may have foolishly thought that if you just were the perfect mom, they wouldn't struggle with those things. But let me relieve you of the mom guilt. (laughs) They, They started out that way. You did not make them that way. Now, you may have contributed to enhancing the problem. And certainly you may have contributed to being the solution to the the problem through your prayers, through your evangelism of your children, through your godly living. Our hands aren't completely tied in the process, but you're not starting with a blank slate. And God has given his people ample warning O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. So you've brought punishment, you've brought discipline, but they refuse to take correction. They've made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. So there's that rejection, replacement, and refusal. Rejection, replacement, and refusal. There's our rebellion in a nutshell. The schools have their three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And here's the three R's of rebellion. Rejection, 
placement and refusal. So the answers, the fourth are, right, the repentance, to turn from that. And a fifth are receive Christ, receive salvation. Man is without excuse all the way from the poor to the rich, the simple to the learned. It makes no difference. Then I said, oh, these are only the poor. They have no sense, for they do not know the way of the Lord. Look, they didn't go to the rabbinical schools. They don't, they don't know any better. This would be the way our world is teaching us. They do evil because they don't know any better. Not true. So then I will go to the great and will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I'll go to the rich. I'll go to the educated. I'll go to the academics. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. Reminded that I have to define this word yoke. It's not the yellow part of the egg. That's a yolk. And we're not an agrarian society anymore. A yoke was a heavy wooden beam placed across the neck and shoulders of the beast of burden. The ox kept them on the straight path. And often, maybe a dual yoke where a stronger ox and a slightly weaker one and that would force them on the straight path. And it's not that God doesn't want us to wear a yoke. He wants us to wear His yoke. But we think freedom is to have no yoke. Beloved, that's bondage. To think you don't need a yoke. Jesus said, come to me all you who are heavy burdened, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He took the hardest part on himself on the cross. But his law is a blessing. It creates safety to have boundaries, to know what is right and wrong and what is well-pleasing to the Lord. Here's your yoke. Put it on every morning and wear it happily through the day. Remember, though, there's always mercy in God's judgment. He says, but even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. He tells us to Judah. When your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. God's judgment is merciful. Just like a parent who never disciplines or punishes his child is not being merciful. So God would not be just or merciful if he allowed our wickedness to go unpunished. There needs to be consequences, so we'll learn. And part of the consequences is allowing us to live in that foreign land. Live in that foreign land, spiritually. You want to live in a land where you're your own God? Okay. And he lets us do that for a time, and we find out how miserable that really is. It's something you can thank God for when He brings discipline into your life for your rebellion. You can praise Him for that discipline. You can thank your mother, call her up today and say thank you for the spankings and the timeouts and the lectures and the disapproving looks. Thank you for correction. So... The last thing I want you to understand today, then, is that fear of the Lord, evangelism, discipleship, undoing the three R's, always includes admitting our own spiritual blindness. Declare this to the house of Jacob. Proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes, but see not, who have ears, but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you, you not tremble before me? Where have we heard that language before? Having eyes, they see not. Having ears, they hear not. Jesus spoke these words often. In fact, he spoke them to his own disciples. Let me show you a story here. 
in Mark 8, if you want to turn to the New Testament. Mark 8, 14. This is after Jesus has fed the 5,000 and repeated the miracle with the 4,000. And they're in the boat, and they only have one loaf of bread. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Right? No problem. Our guy makes bread. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What's Jesus doing here? He's taking their minds off of what they think is their problem. He, he's, he's getting them out of their own cistern and taking them to the fountains of living water and say, Beware, you think not having bread is a problem? Having corrupt bread is a worse pr- problem. Leaven is yeast and it often meant false teaching or sin. Beware of the false teaching of the leaders of our day, the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees were teaching legalism and the Herodians were teaching antinomianism, which is uh, doing whatever you want, whenever you want, feeling you have the liberty to do so. They're both wrong. And you need to be looking and examining your lives for Phariseeism. Hey, here's a handful of rules that I keep really well, and therefore I'm a good person and God loves me. That's legalism, Phariseeism. Versus antinomianism, God's grace gives me permission to live however I want to live. Both of them are terrible heresies. And so instead of going, oh, wow, the disciples say, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. (laughs) And we see ourselves doing this. Just spend a little time on Facebook. People talking about this and that and this thing and the other thing. And you're like, what? <laughs> what does this have to do with anything? And he says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? I just made 9,000... <laughs> I fed 9,000 people. We'll get bread. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? You know another guy who was blind? Paul. He had the best education you could find in his day. He was like summa cum laude Harvard graduate. Trained by Gamaliel, a Pharisee of Pharisees, rising star in the Pharisaical system. And he was on a mission to get rid of all these Christians. And God knocks him off his high horse in the middle of his mission and literally blinds him to teach him, you are blind. Beloved, this should be a warning to us. Take heed lest ye fall. A haughty spirit comes before a fall. I I want you to have firm convictions But be careful with your firm convictions. You could be firmly convicted about the wrong things. Be like the Bereans. Search search the scriptures together. Come in, ask your counselor, your discipler, do you see something I don't see in me? Leave us with this story you're familiar with. Here's the master doing evangelism, discipleship. And I, I, I kind of hyphenate those things because you have to understand that when somebody gets saved, evangelism doesn't stop. You should be preaching the good news to your own heart every day. Your heart needs to hear the good news every day because there's still that residual sin nature and it's the gospel that mortifies the flesh, that kills the flesh, that pour cement into the old cistern. That's what discipleship is. It's ongoing evangelism. It's that part of your heart that still needs to be evangelized. 
There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, what's going on here? Here's a woman in the middle of the day getting water from the well. When all the other women came first thing in the morning before the heat of the day, She's a Samaritan, so Jesus shouldn't be talking to her. She's a woman, so he really shouldn't be talking to her. And why is she all alone at this well in the middle of the day? She's a perfect candidate for evangelism discipleship. These are the people we need to reach. For the disciples had gone away in the city to buy food, still looking for bread, no doubt. Missing out on the good stuff. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. She's compelled by him. Somebody, somebody cares. He's winning an audience here. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Hey, take that conversation and make a beeline for God. You don't have to memorize some canned version of the gospel. You need to get the, the conversation to God. Get the other person thinking about God. If man's problem is that he stops thinking about God and stops thinking about God's thoughts, then we've got to get people back to thinking about God. You think your problem is you have no water. Your problem is you need God. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She's still thinking in the here and now, in the material. But she's listening. And she says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She knows a little Bible history. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's Jeremiah, right? Fountain of living water. So he's confronting her and showing her gently, you're drinking from broken cisterns. Your whole life and the way you've arranged your life and your whole thought process is off. And the solution is to come to the fountain of living waters. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Look, she still thinks her problem is that the other women in the village mock her. And she's like, if I have this water, I won't ever have to come to this well again. Or maybe... She just doesn't like her chores. Moms, right? <laughs> if only I had this, or a housekeeper, or whatever, my life would be perfect. But that's not the case. By the way, don't make your moms do the housework today. For goodness sake. Give her a day off at least. Give her the week off. He said, go call your husband and then come back here. And the woman said, well, I have no husband. Okay, here's where evangelism and discipleship always gets a little dicey, right? You have spoken correctly. You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. He, he, he let her talk. And out of the overflow of the heart... The mouth speaks, and that's what you have to do when you evangelize and disciple. Listen to the other person, and then gently show them where their version of life and reality isn't measuring up to the Bible, because that's where the problem is. And so that's where the solution is. He's just pointing out one area of her life, but he's not going to harp on it. The answer isn't, now just go, get, go marry this guy and then everything will be fixed. You've you got to fix the heart and then the outward behaviors will follow. 
The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. See, she's saying, Look, you're this Jew, and for our whole life we've been told we're worshipping on the wrong mountain, but you won't even let us worship in Jerusalem. So how am I supposed to be saved if I can't even worship in the right place? How can you throw my sins in my face and then not give me any access to salvation? That's, that's her complaint here. And Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. That's works righteousness. It's not how it works. It's not how it's done. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In spirit, reborn, regeneration, and in truth. Sanctification through the truth of God's word. Regeneration, sanctification. Spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is a gospel invitation to her. Stop asking what it is you can do to be saved. Well, I can't go to the temple. I can't worship there. How am I going to be saved? So I might as well keep living in adultery, because what's the point? No, you must be born again. And you must repent and be sanctified through the truth. Stop thinking falsehood. Stop drinking from your own cistern and drink from the fountain of living water. If you're here today and you've never drank from the fountain of living water, this is good news for you. Salvation is right there at your lips. You just need to take and drink deeply from Jesus, the fountain of living water. And for the rest of us, stop drinking from that old stagnant water. Stop thinking your own thoughts and start thinking God's thoughts after him and living according to those thoughts. Father God, thank you for living water that gives us new life and refreshes and transforms us. May we all drink deeply. In Jesus' name, amen.